I'm at the stage of life. Someone uh, at the men's, the men's Bible study said, you look old and tired. And I thought, that's accurate. He said, I hope I, that didn't offend you. I was like, no, that's a fact. It's, you know, I could get it. But I'm at that stage in life where I'm going through the experience of having one of my children live far away. And to make matters worse, it's my little girl. And she's my youngest. And she's my baby. She, I would never say that in front of her. But she's on her own in Georgia. And we went down recently to help her move from one apartment to another. She's in school and doing research and had to leave the one, one housing thing to go to a more permanent place. And she lives alone. And she has an old car with a lot of miles on it. And sometimes she works at remote sites at night by herself. And she has spotty cell service. And we're not down there. And I can't get down there very quickly. And when I was with her last week, I found myself constantly giving instructions with the word always in them. Always keep your phone charged up. She, of course, heard all of this and nodding appreciation and not the least bit of irritation or cynicism. Always carry your pepper spray. Where is it? I bought it for you. I updated it. Where is it? Always bring your self-defense tactical knife I got you. Where's that? (laughs) Always tell people where you are and always call me if you're in trouble. Always call me if you're in trouble. And as her father, naturally, I want to protect her. I want her to be close by, but we have to be apart right now. And I'm trying to give her instructions to keep her safe until she does live nearby or until I can trust her to a sacrificial husband that would step in front of a bullet for her. And uh, until that happens, I'm giving her these instructions about always. Paul is writing to a small body of believers in a city of 200,000 people that are hostile to Christianity, and he is separated from them. And rather... When we read this letter, rather than our, our, you know, our cultural tendency to correct others is with arrogance or condescendingly or pridefully, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians like a parent. He says he's affectionate to them like a mother, but charging them firmly like a father. And he, he cares about these people like they are his own children. He's not ridiculing them. He's not belittling them. He's constantly thanking God for them. In, in his prayers, and in a city hostile to Christians, he's not just giving them helpful words to live by. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, he's giving them the word of God. This letter is not reminding us of how you don't live up to God's expectations. This is the Holy Spirit of God looking on you with the love of a father wanting so badly for your good. So, even though we're in chapter five, I want you to know he, he begins this letter talking about prayer. And, and our pastor has been leading us through the scriptures about prayer and, and asked me to talk about it in, uh, in a more of a practical, topical way. And I saw this passage in chapter five, but also he sent, begins the letter with, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Then in this short passage in chapter 5, we are given this pattern to follow for our life. What's God's will for my life? People sometimes ask, well, this is it. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But he uses these troublesome phrases like always in chapter 5, verse 15, and always in verse 16, and without ceasing in verse 17, and in all circumstances in verse 18. 
So for a believer, this is your pattern. This is your habit. This is your default. There'd be the ways that you live your life, uh, the ways that people would describe you. These are commands that are to characterize your life, but they sound like absolutes. Now, as humans, sometimes we don't do well with absolutes. Um, always seek to do good to one another, always rejoice. Since we know that nobody's perfect and, and it, this, is, this is an absolute, can we just kind of shrug this off? Can we just say, this is, this is literally impossible for me to do, so I guess I'm kind of off the hook. And we're also really used to speaking and hearing in hyperbole. Extreme exaggerations to make a point. The extreme exaggerations, though, have become so prevalent in our language, in our daily life, it's easy to dismiss them as no longer important. I have, I have migraines, and when you tell someone that you have migraines to someone who have migraines, they're like, I know, I know what you're going through. But when you tell someone who doesn't have migraines that you have migraines, they go, oh, really? Well, when I have a headache, I just take an aspirin or just deal with it. And so one time I was telling someone I had a really bad migraine, and I could tell they just weren't getting it the way I wanted them to feel how they should feel in sympathy for me. And I said, I felt like my head was literally going to explode. Now, if someone had been a little snarky, they could have said, oh, really? You thought that there was such a buildup of energy in your head that it was going to suddenly release and send your head going in every direction and I would have to say, well, no, that's not, but they would say, you said literally. And I had to admit, I am using hyperbole, extreme exaggeration so often that people don't even hear it anymore. And then we read this command and it says, pray without ceasing. But this is different. We should expect that God uses language differently than we do. And if anyone speaks in absolutes accurately, it's God. Believers read God's word and we desire to obey and God gave us his word for a reason. And if you think you can never live a life characterized by doing anything always, just ask those who know you well. How many times have you been praised or criticized for always doing something? My wife loves me very much. And she thinks that I am a wonderful husband. Just ask her. But she also knows me very well. And she knows all of my tendencies. We've been married 30 years. Uh, she knows my habits and has observed some of them to me with a tone of, let's just say, slight irritation. For example, she's made it known to me that sometimes I will pour a carton of milk and leave only a tiny amount left in the bottom. And when I had to really go back and analyze it, I realized it was probably like a tablespoon. And uh, from my perspective, it's, it's rare, but on other occasions, I will pour out the last amount of cereal, but I will leave a handful in the box, like maybe crumbs. And then I'll eat the bag of potato chips and there's really nothing left but the salt and a few pieces and I'll just put that back in the cabinet, she says all the time. And what she says happens is she will walk into the kitchen and open up the cabinets in the refrigerator and it looks like we have a lot of food, but actually it's just a bunch of totally empty packages that are, that are almost completely empty. And I, I didn't really notice that. I, don't, I don't, didn't think it happens that often, but Jennifer made it clear to me and sometimes to other people that I always <laughs> do that. So 
I, I admit, Jennifer's, you know, she sees my blind spots. She's, she's watching me. She's seen me for 30 years. And she says, I always do that. I do it so often that she feels comfortable saying that I, it's always and that she's pointed it out. And now I'm beginning to catch myself and discovered that, that she's correct. And uh, anyone who in here who's married, even a short amount of time, can probably think of things that your spouse says that you always do. Even if you're a teenager, you might think of things that your parents say that you always do. We may not be very good at absolutes, but we are very good at habits. It is in our nature to develop routines and habits and even rituals that are so deeply ingrained in our lives that they they finally, we don't even know that we're doing them. And to others, those patterns become how we are known, even who we are. This is the word of God telling us here to be intentional about setting those habits and routines and patterns. Be known for these things. Make them so consistent, so persistent that they become your default. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So as in the Ten Commandments, in the short passage, there are commands about your relationship with others and commands about your relationship with God. Paul starts with this admonishment against revenge. Not only are we to avoid getting back at people or evening the score, but we're also to figure out what good we might do for each other. He starts with your fellow believers in church. That's, a, that's an important reason to come to church. Hopefully you're hearing the word of God preached and you're getting to serve, but you also have people that ruffle your feathers, that swerve into your lane, you need that so you can practice this, following this command to do good to those, even that they do evil to you. And then he says, we're always to seek to do their good. And if that wasn't challenging enough, we can't even, we can't even pay out people outside the congregation. Paul says we have to figure out how to do good to everyone. How is this possible? Think about it, the coworker trying to make you look bad, the guy in traffic that puts your family at risk when you're driving down the interstate at 70 with a U-Haul trailer full of your daughter's furniture and he does a U-turn right in front of you on a four lane, you slam on the brakes, you think, I'm gonna have my first jackknife. That's just a general example, not anything specific. But think about it. Think about the things that, the family member that ruins every get together, the person that always makes everything about them. We're supposed to do good to everyone. How can we always seek to do good to the people that do evil to us? Well, Paul turns immediately to our relationship with God, with more absolutes. Rejoice always, verse 16, a pattern of being joyful to God. Verse 17, pray without ceasing, a pattern of prayer to God. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, a pattern of gratitude to God in all circumstances. To be able to rejoice and do good to people who do evil to you, your joy can't come from how you are treated or from what is happening to you. It has to come from prayer, from communion with God. So if you're reading this letter, you might walk away asking, well, how much are we supposed to pray? The simple answer is without ceasing. Well, since we know we practically have to do other things and can't literally pray every minute, we might be tempted to shelve this command to pray without ceasing as a metaphor that practically works itself out to pray about once a week. 
But in this same letter, Paul says he prays for them constantly in chapter 1, verse 2. And he says he's praying for them night and day in chapter 3, verse 10. And then this man who is apparently praying all the time asked them to pray for him in chapter 5, verse 25. So how much prayer do we need? We need to pray without ceasing. John Piper, he's, he's my go-to for understanding passages, and he says about this passage, lean on God all the time and call to him repeatedly and often never give up looking to him for help. Come to him repeatedly during the day and come often. Make the default state of your mind a Godward longing and Godward thankfulness. So what are we saying? What are we saying when a week goes by without prayer? Few of us would say these things out loud, but here's what we're really saying when we don't pray. I don't believe God. He promises to hear, but we practically live like we don't believe he's listening. When a week goes by without prayer, we're saying, I don't need God. He says we're like children, like sheep, blind sheep. But failing to pray can, can mean we are subconsciously saying, I'm really the one in control and I can handle this alone. When we don't pray, it's like saying, God doesn't want to hear from me because maybe I'm too sinful. But Jesus says, when, when the worst rebel with the filth of sin still covering him turns and comes to us, to the Father, he runs to them. We're saying, maybe I'm too busy for God. He directs the hearts of kings like changing the direction of a stream. And we've got more important things to do. What are we saying when a week goes by without prayer? I'm too tired to pray? Someone told me they were too tired to, to do anything. And I, I asked them about their sleeping patterns. And they said, well, uh, I do drink two energy drinks every evening because I'm so tired. Uh, need to get wrapped and things done before bed. So then I look at my phone until I... Uh, probably pass out around 4 or 5 a.m. And uh, I realized they, they have made a decision. When, when you do those things, you have decided not to pray because you'll, be you'll fall asleep as soon as you start. When we say, maybe, maybe subconsciously we're, we're really saying, I don't have time to pray. A great question to ask, I ask myself, well, what do you have time for? News? I'll pick this because this is, this is one of my struggles. I, read, I heard a new word uh, recently called doom scrolling. It's the act of spending, act of spending excessive amount of time. When I heard this word, I already knew what it meant. I'd never heard it before. An excessive amount of time reading large quantities of negative news online. In 2019, a study by the National Academy of Sciences found that doom scrolling can be linked to a decline in mental and physical health. No kidding. Uh, you have trouble sleeping, maybe you shouldn't doom scroll. Uh, you know, it's, it's, and, and think about it, for most of human existence, the bad things that we were aware of could be mostly limited to the people that we knew or in our community. And every once in a while, a traveler might come and tell us that something happened five years ago in another country. But now, thanks to the wonders of technology, we can virtually watch every horrible thing that happens on the face of the earth, super concentrated into video clips that can just never, never end. And obviously, doom scrolling has, has uh, kept me from prayer because 
Not only does it keep me prepared, but it also causes me to be super worried about things over which I have zero control or influence. It's lose-lose. What do we have time for? Another phrase I heard uh, recently, worry porn, worry porn. It's a genre of journalism described as news sources warning about dreaded outcomes so vividly and excitedly that it seems they actually want them to happen. What else is keeping you from prayer? Social media, streaming, binge watching, televised games, video games, whatever it is, we got to remember our powerful, benevolent creator that made us and wants us to come into his presence is waiting. And instead, we are staring at a screen. What else do we have time for? It would be very legalistic, another struggle of mine, be very legalistic to say, here's a certain number of minutes that you should spend today in prayer, then God will approve of you. Obviously, I'm not going to say that. But maybe we should get real legalistic about measuring the number of minutes that we spend doing the things that keep us from prayer. I don't say this to discourage you because that would not be the tone of this letter or, or the intention of the Holy Spirit. I want us to all examine our lives and pray so we can be encouraged. It's very hard to stop a habit but it's not so hard to replace one. Commit today to make time for prayer. So how do we do this? How do we pray constantly but effectively? And, and Jeremy asked me to be very practical. And so if you're struggling to imagine, how, how could I possibly pray as long as I might sometimes stare at a screen? If you don't know what you would say, I do want to give you some practical, but I believe biblical help in a more topical pattern. Number one, memorize God's word. I don't, I don't want to say like start memorizing the book of Psalms, although there is a man who did memorize the whole book of Psalms and recited it to uh, one of my professors. It took him two and a half hours. But memorize a verse, challenge, a verse that challenges you, a verse maybe that inspires you, and then pray it back to God. It's okay if you do it a lot. Recite it and pray, God, Maybe you should pray, let this be true of me. Um, Psalm 112, 5 verse 8, it says, It is well with a man who deals generously in lens, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. His heart is firm. He is not afraid of bad news. I had to memorize that, and I have prayed it maybe a thousand times. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. I needed that. Memorize God's word and recite it back to him. Number two, walk with God. There's, there's so many phrases in scripture about walking with God. It's, it's, it's praying for longer and for more. And if that makes you anxious, think about walking with God, maybe even in a literal sense. Go walk with God with the intention of being in his presence. We were made for communion with God. That's what we were designed for. And sin separates us from God. And, and through Christ, we're invited to be back in communion with him temporarily and imperfectly until we can be perfectly in communion with him again in the future and, and when Christ returns. But walking with God, we can do now. Seeking to spend time with him because that's what we were made for. Psalm 16, it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you want fullness of joy? 
be in God's presence. Walk with God. Maybe literally go for a walk seeking to be in, in, the, in the presence of the Lord. Make time. Number three, cry out to God. I think sometimes it's easy to, to, to not pray because we don't, we're not in the mood. Things aren't going well. Uh, maybe we're panicked. Maybe we're confused. Maybe we're frustrated and hurting, angry. That's the best time to pray. Have you read Psalms? Have you read Lamentations? Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's a prayer. Now read the rest of it. Don't stop there, but don't stop praying because you're hurting. Pray because you're hurting. God is not saying fix your attitude before you come to him. Come to him. Just come to him. God is not a mindless force that you try to manipulate. He's your heavenly father and he wants you to be honest and he wants you to come to him and pour your heart out, cry out to God. Those prayers are effective. And if you feel like your prayers are just a daily list of complaints or wishes, here's something I started doing 25 years ago and I never stopped. Uh, it's, it's the ACTS acronym, A-C-T-S, ACTS. It helps me to remember to just not bring God a list of complaints, problems, and wishes. Acts, it's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. If you're a kind of note-taking person, this is your favorite part, I know. Adoration, make your bullet points so you can fill in the blanks. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. This is easy to remember, and it helps me to remember a pattern of praying effectively. Adoration, acknowledge who God is. Start out acknowledging who God is. The moment you grasp for one second who you are talking to, your prayers will be transformed. Confession. If you have offended your friend or hurt your wife's feelings or yelled at your kids, you know you've got to admit fault to restore the relationship before you can just go on and carry on a conversation. Confess. If we need to do that for our, our wives and, and children and spouses and friends, how much more do we need to confess our sins to a Heavenly Father? to restore the relationship so we can talk. Thanksgiving, if you're afraid you don't feel gratitude under the circumstances that you're in, that's perfect because Paul says we are to give thanks in all circumstances. Circumstances aren't what make you feel grateful. You have a heart of thanksgiving and and thank God. And this isn't some psychological mind game you try to play with yourself. It is a mental exercise to remember what you have in Christ, what you have been promised, and what you have already been given. And even unbelievers practice this. I've read articles that that people need to practice having a heart of thankfulness in general or to the universe to get psychological benefits. I don't understand that. Uh, But they say you should do it and you will feel better, and your, ex, you know, your serotonin will increase, and your cortisol or whatever will go down. And I'm thinking, good gracious, that really works? How much more for the children of a real, living God who is personal and knows you personally, how much more to acknowledge what he has intentionally done for you personally? Thanksgiving, supplication, It's okay to ask. Ask for things. What are you worried about? Ask. What do you want to change? Ask. 
But you're thinking, don't we have to conform our will to God's will? You've been listening to Pastor Jeremy. That's correct. Yes. But don't forget, God wants you to have joy and fulfillment and contentment and peace. Real peace. So, no, you shouldn't pray that God make my wife show me some respect around here. But you can pray, God, help me to be a husband more like Christ is a husband to the church. You'll change. God will change you. And then you might find that the woman next to you admires a man who sacrifices for her. The second prayer is powerful because it is God's will for you. And it will give you what you really want. Anxious about money, you might be tempted to pray to win the lottery. But just do a quick internet search of all the things that happen to people who win the lottery. Like, they're lucky if their relatives aren't trying to kill them. Uh, They usually don't end up with happily ever after. So God knows what you need. Pray that God provides all your needs. Pray that you have security. Pray that you have joy, peace, and contentment with what he has given you. Wouldn't you love to have contentment? That's what you really want. Not more things to worry about. Not more things to hope that you have more than someone else. That makes you miserable. God wants you to have real peace and joy. Ask for what you need. He wants to provide for you. Do you have an unsolvable problem at work? Ask God for insight and discernment. Ask him to give you the answer to solve the problem. Need a car to get to work? Pray for a car. Pray for a car that will get you to work. I actually prayed about my septic system leech lines for a week. And God answered the prayers. I needed help. Nobody could solve it. Everything was going wrong. It gets to serious business when that happens and you can't fix it. It's just you just don't go on with your life and act like nothing's wrong. And I had to pray. God says pray. Pray about everything. Keep asking. Keep asking. Remember it. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. If you pray for God to intervene in your life on Tuesday and it happened, hasn't on Thursday, that is not a no. Keep praying. Keep asking. Ask day and night. Pray for the same thing and commit to pray for it for a year. Every day. He says, keep asking. Ask. In the book of Esther, we learned in the ancient Near East, you don't just approach an ancient Near Eastern king with your requests. She knew it. And she knew that if anyone goes to the king without being called, it was a death sentence. And I do mean in a literal sense. Unless the king sees this person boldly enter into his inner court and he holds out the golden scepter. And if he holds out that golden scepter, you're going to live. And the king will hear your request. That's why everybody wants to see the king. They want to ask somebody who can do something. And you know the story. She held, he held out the golden scepter. We should remember who we're talking to when we pray. He is a king. But the golden scepter is always held out for us. Because in Christ, you aren't just anyone. You are his child, God is the one who, in 1 Timothy 6, 17, richly provides us everything to enjoy. So remember, God is not a frustrated babysitter trying to get a toddler to quit whining. 
He is a good father that wisely gives you what you need and he wants to keep you from getting hurt, but he also wants your joy. He invented pleasure. He created you to have contentment and fulfillment and joy in him. He just says, ask. It's a life dependent on God. Praying without ceasing is dependent on God. Our pastor has shown us so many reasons why we should pray and I can't add to that, but this command on prayer tells us one thing about prayer. A person that prays without ceasing knows their dependence on God. Praying without ceasing says, I need God constantly. So if you're hearing this with a sense of fatigue, if it sounds like a a burden, one more task you've got to add to an already cluttered life, as if you know you need to do better, it's just so hard, I don't know how I'm going to find the time that it's possible, you may not even understand what prayer is. The reason a believer wants to pray is that he wants to be with someone. She wants to be in the presence of someone. Someone that always knows our, and always wants our highest good better than anyone else. Someone that knows every hair on our head. Someone that actually created the concept of pleasure. To be with someone that invented endorphins. Someone who doesn't just define love, but actually is love. Someone who doesn't just know the future, but is actually orchestrating the future. Someone that doesn't just listen to worries, but it could actually do something about our worries. Someone more powerful than all the governments of all the nations in all of history. Someone that describes himself in the Old Testament as waiting all day long with open arms for us to come. Someone who looks for his hurting children far off and then runs to them when they come. Someone who, when we wouldn't come to him, sent his son to come to us. And this son made sick people well by the thousands. He gave them food. He heard their pleas and said he had compassion on him. And when his followers asked for help because they were afraid they were going to drown, he told a storm to be quiet for them. That's who is inviting us to come to him. To spend time with him in prayer. To ask of him. So yes, we need to make a healthy habit and to pray without ceasing. But this habit isn't like exercise or eating healthier or other things we know we really need to do but just don't have time for. This is nothing less than an invitation to daily come in the presence of the living God, the God of all past, present, and future, and he actually wants you to come. Does it sound hard to pray without ceasing? The question is, What are you going to do instead? So now I have a question for you. Will you do it? Will you commit to pray without ceasing? I try to be very practical and talk a lot about how, but let me give you one last reason why. Right before Paul gives all of these commands and admonitions, he tells the church to be ready. To be ready for an actual day that will be on the calendar that Jesus literally, physically, bodily returns. He says in chapter four, just before this, for Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Why do we pray without ceasing? It's not just a good habit like brushing your teeth or having gratitude toward the universe. This, there is an event on the horizon. Jesus is coming. 
He is coming like a thief in the night. Many will not be ready. Many will be fearful. Many will not know him. But believers do know him. They have known him. They have sought him out and spent time with him. And when he comes, they will see him for who he is and they will become like him. And see in this same letter, there is another absolute, another always. When Jesus returns, we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus is coming. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances and pray without ceasing. When God says always, he's not exaggerating. He's not just adding tasks to your already burdened life like a father that wants only good things for his daughter while he's away. When he says always, he means always.